Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. So happy Father's Day. If you didn't get something uh, yet, dads, you can literally just go back there and start eating. It's not going to bother me at all. I used to be in the army and I'd be preaching to troops while bombs were going off in the background. And so I'm, I'm good with it. If you need to just, if you crunch so loud on bacon that it sounds like artillery, then you win. You win today. So do that. Happy Father's Day. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on uh, a message for dads. I don't know what you came expecting. Um, if you were here on Mother's Day, you're also aware we covered a hymn. And so I said, Happy Mother's Day. And then we covered a hymn. Why? Well, it's important to celebrate together, but I want you to know something. We're on mission together. And no matter what the day might be, we're on mission together. And so one thing that I'm so thankful for as I look around the room is a lot of dads that are working hard and taking care of their kids. And the main, one of the main problems in society is actually fatherlessness. Uh, you don't hear about this a lot on CNN or in the news but one, the, the leading cause of incarceration is fatherlessness. The leading cause of kids dropping out of school and all these many other things is fatherlessness. There's a reason for that, and I think it's a biblical one. And that is God has called men to be fathers. And there's no, there's, there's no means of escape there. If you've, if you've made one, you're called. <laughs> and so I'm thankful for you today, dads. Be faithful in your journey. Be prayerful. You're not ready. You're never ready. Like We never figure this out as dads. I don't think we're constantly learning. But hang in there, persevere, and ask the Lord of hosts for power. We're going to dig into a new series today. And I'm excited for it because it's something that's been motivating uh, me behind the scenes that I think you're going to see more and more as a church. And that's this motivation uh, to be a sending church. We've done it by accident so far. I want to start doing it on purpose. Uh, in the past, we've sent some of our very best people to go on and do great things. And I'm so proud of them. We've sent great, a great many of you to do various tasks on mission fields and, and your communities. And I'm thankful for that. But a lot of that happened just organically and not necessarily on purpose. And God be praised for that. But I want to be the kind of church that is getting after it on purpose. And so we're going to be talking for the next four weeks about this idea of what it looks like to have gospel saturation. That's a funny word to use. But if you think about it like, like a sponge, if it's saturated, it's dripping. I mean, it's, it is so immersed with this that there's, there would be no escaping the idea that this thing has got whatever it is. And so the idea of gospel saturation is that our community would be so inundated with the gospel that you could tell it was dripping with Jesus, right? That's the hope. That's the goal. How do we get there? And it's, it's going to take work. And it's going to take a people who are serious about the mission of God. It's also going to take us moving from a few things that we've been doing. Whether we knew we were doing them or not, there's a culture in church, at least American church, uh, that's been going on for several decades, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't founded with any bad intention. In fact, a lot of good has come out of what we call the church growth model. 
And our church, whether we like it or not, has been really working under that premise of the church growth model. That is, we work very hard to try to grow this body of believers in discipleship, don't get me wrong, in mission, all these things. It was not a bad goal. And yet it often led us to the wrong outcome rather than to have what we would call a gospel saturation kind of church, a mobilizing, sending kind of church. So I don't think we're going to feel a lot of growing pains here, and I think we won't because we're more like a speedboat still. We're only a few years old, seven coming up on seven years here in September, and so I feel like I can just adjust the ship, and if a few of you fly off, then I'm sorry, but like <laughs> we'll make it, we'll live. Like We're not driving a yacht here or something, so we're just going to like make a, a little move here towards today's idea is towards mobilization rather than collection towards mobilization. Now, I'm, I'm going to explain these terms. They're big words and all. But the, the, the motivation here is to move towards sending and doing it on purpose. Now, here's kind of the premise. And you're going to hear me say these kinds of words a lot. I'm going to say them a lot because I figured out people take, they need to hear a thing a, a bunch of times before they remember it. We used to have these other statements as a church for like five years as Eastgate Church. We had these other statements. Talk amongst yourselves. Hello? That's a new one. Thank you, board. I might have been about to say something great. What was it I was saying? Hmm. You kicked me off the boat. I kicked I kicked myself off the boat just now. That was wild. No, I remember what it was. It takes a long time for us to remember things. We had these other statements. We have new statements. There are heart statements. Who knows our heart statements? Adam? Yeah, you see them as you walk in the door. Y'all know them. You're just being bashful, okay? It's... You mostly know these statements. They're easier. We tried to make it more simplistic. The old statements, no one remembers them. But we've had to repeat these things over and over and over. Come just as you are and be forever changed by the love of Jesus. Most of you know that statement. You may, If I said, what's our vision statement? You'd be like, uh, I don't know. But you knew that, that word. So for the next several weeks and really from this point on, we're going to be using some terms and we're going to learn them together. So here's gospel saturation. Here's it's on the screen uh, from a, a, a work of people called Christ Together. It says gospel saturation is the church owning the lostness of an identified people in a defined place, ensuring that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ where they live, learn, work, and play. In that, I want you to take a couple of bite sizes, all right? It's a long sentence, but if you'll remember a few things. Every man, woman, and child, that's our goal. Where do we do it? Where we live, work, learn, and play. Where is that? Well, that sounds like everywhere. But it's a good way to break it down, to think, okay, well, I've got lost people. I've got people in my household that don't know Christ. I've got people in my workplace. It's a good way to consider these. This is gospel saturation that we would say, this is our people and we're going to work as hard as we can by the power of the Holy Spirit to give those people repeated opportunities to see and hear and respond to Jesus. Now, this is really a repetition of what Christ has said in a much shorter way. And you know the Great Commission of Matthew. He says it again in Mark 16, 15, which Christ says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The whole creation. 
Now here's a, f- a couple of statistics as we start to dig into this sermon. A couple of things you might not know that you should know. And that is, the American church is in decline. That's a fact. You don't, you don't have to watch the news. You don't have to look around too much to see that that is true. Every statistical thing we're using right now shows that the church is in decline. Less than 20% of Americans actually attend church on a regular basis. Less than 20%. That's a baffling number. Census data, in fact, shows that 21% of the American population considers themselves to have no religion labeled by some sociologists as the rise of the nuns. Not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. U.S. church membership, when first measured in 1937, was somewhere around 73%. And it remained near 70% for six decades. And then somewhere around the turn of the millennia, it has been steadily declining until for the first time, it is below 50%. What does that mean? What is to blame for that? The American population, just so you know, isn't decreasing. It's actually increased to 335 million and counting. And the church has declined in that time. So we're living in the greatest decline of Christianity in our nation. And it's happening on our watch. Now I feel that personally. You may not. I pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to tug at you about this. Because this is the mission of God, as the Latin said, missio dei, the mission of God, the great commission. Now what's to blame? Why is the church losing ground? We could blame a lot of things for this. In fact, we could start by blaming the devil, and that's probably true. We could blame the the culture, we could blame social media, the government, we could... Blame a lot of things, and there'd be truth to all of that. There'd be truth to why those things. But I think step one is look in the mirror. Step one is look in the mirror. What, where am I at on this? Perhaps the church in America has been too focused on building its own kingdom rather than being active members of the church in an ever-increasing kingdom. Here's an image for you that I'm going to begin working through today as we dig into 2 Timothy. Collecting communities rather than mobilizing communities. I know it's, it's a little small, but the idea here is in, what, in the church growth model, we were collecting, we were protecting our assets, we were building organizations, churches built on programs and doing more and more great programs. And eventually this leads to competition. This is why people, when they invite others to church, you should come to my church. My pastor's really pretty. You know? No one says that, do they? Have you ever heard that said? Gosh, can y'all use that? Like, I'm okay with that. Use that one. My pastor's really pretty. But they'll say, oh man, we've got the best worship. You know, uh, we've we've got just the greatest children's ministry. And uh, people use these kind of things, and it's competitive language. We can't help ourselves. Come to my place. We have the best this. And the reason for that is because we're collecting. We need more. we got to grow the thing. And don't hear me say we shouldn't grow as a church, but we need to ask the question, why? Why do we need to grow? We need to grow because we need to send more. We need to grow because disciples make disciples, not because Eastgate needs a bigger building or cooler stuff. You already know this in your heart. 
So when we move to mobilization, we move to more of a collaborating community. That is, we start to look at other churches and go, okay, how can we help each other? Because there's a ton of people in our city that are far from God. I mean a ton. Here's a couple of statistics for you, and then I I am going to get into this actual Word of God, which is why you're here. I want to give you a couple of thoughts just to kind of hone in on this. Let's just say for a moment that between our two campuses in Wilson and in Rocky Mount, let's say we average somewhere between 400 and 600 people in attendance. Now, we're far from that. Look around. I, I don't know how good your math is, but we're not there. And let's say we average 10 first-time guests per Sunday. That would mean in 52 Sundays a year, we would have proclaimed the gospel to 400 to 600 people plus 520 first-time guests. That would be a rocking year for us. We've never been there. But here's the, here's the dramatic thing. That would be close to 1,000 people. Here's what you may not know. The combined population of Wilson County and Nash County is somewhere around 180,000 people. And according to a recent study, only 42% of them attend any, some, any form of worship. That's a lot of people. That means somewhere around 105,000 people are out. And we don't, we don't know where they are. How long will it take us if we are rocking, just hitting a thousand somehow every year? How long will it take us to reach that? <laughs> Hundreds of years? <laughs> I'm not going to make it. Like, I, don't know, I don't know if the Lord's going to give me 200 years. I'm thinking no. So, and, and I may get tired. I'm just going to put that out there. I, I, I don't know. In my 80s, I may get tired. I'm just, I feel strong now, so we'll see. Maybe He'll give me strength for a great many years. This is why the church might be in in decline. Because that's the wrong answer. The right answer, however, is mobilization. Mobilization occurs when God's people are being trained and equipped to own the lostness of a defined people in a defined place. One doctor, Jim Slack, when working in the Congo for 50 years, he said, "When when God's people own the lostness of their place, God moves. I want to see God move. How about you? I want to see Him move. I want to see Him move in our city. I'm not comfortable with Him only moving in these walls. He does it all the time. I want to see Him go. And I want to be with Him. I want to follow Him in that, in that manner. So let's dig in. We're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I've been on vacation for two weeks, so I'm going to have to go fast because i got so much to say. Alright, 2 Timothy, quit hiding from me. In the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy, he's writing here about mobilization. He's writing about how the church where he leads should be about spreading the gospel. And I believe the text is going to give us four imperatives to being mobilized. So let's dig in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5. I only have five verses. We're, we might be in good shape. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judged to the living and the dead, and by His appearing and and His kingdom. Do this. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. With what? Complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. 
God bless the reading of His Word. This is fantastic. There's nine imperatives in here. I'm not going to cover them all. We'd be here all day. There's a lot of instruction just in these five verses. But I want to just look at verse 5 because I think this is a good summary of what Paul's after. Four things he says there to Timothy about how to be mobilized for gospel saturation. Here's the first I see. Always be watchful. Always be watchful. Now, the ESV says sober-minded. That kind of... That feels weird when you read it, but that word underneath there, underneath that Greek, is the sense of sobriety, but in the sense that you're fully aware. Like your mind is clear. In fact, one of the better definitions is the word circumspect. In the army, we used to call this having your head on a swivel. Like you're you're constantly looking, you're watchful. That's the idea of this word. He says that, Paul says that to Timothy. He says that's what it means to begin the work. What are you watching for? Well, you're, you're watching yourself and making sure that you don't fall into temptation. But I think there's this other spot of watching the Spirit and the Holy Spirit moving. Where is God already at work in my life? Where, where do I already see Him opening up doors? Where, what people are already asking peculiar questions? What, what, what places am I already at where it seems people are hungry for Christ? Be watchful. Paul charges him in this. And how does he charge him? Well, verse 1 says he charges him in the presence of God and of Christ. Now, if I do anything wrong today, it'll be to make you think that somehow this is something you can accomplish apart from the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. Do not hear me say that. I pray that does not what you think. That you walk out of the door and think, boy, I've really got to roll up my sleeves and do this hard work for Jesus. No, the word is follow Christ. Be watchful for the Spirit's move. In the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, charge. Don't miss that part. It's the most important part of what Paul's saying. That the gift of mission has been given and the power to do it has also been given. He goes on to say in verse 2, preach the Word and, and, and be a herald. This word preach, we think, well, that's just for preachers. That's not what the Word is talking about. It literally means to be a messenger, to be a herald. That means you've heard good news and you're willing to tell others about it. That's not as hard, is it? You hear preach the Word and you think, well, Pastor Jay's got that. Sure, that's true, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about being a herald. That you know the king, the king's given a message, and you're willing to go out and talk about it. Everyone is a part of that journey. And then he says something, just in case you missed it, in case you looked at that and thought it was somehow fluffy or for another, he says, be ready, be ready when? In season and out of season. Now that's troubling. That means there are going to be occasions where preaching the word is out of season. <laughs> what does that even mean? Well, I think, look, around you? Maybe we're there? Like, it's not super popular to be a Christian right now. At least not one that's really obedient to Scripture. This might be out of season. He says, be ready. There's, there's also the nuance of that, that there are moments where you could obviously tell that this is a moment where I need to share my faith, but there are other moments where it doesn't feel as perfect in season and out of season. The, the words here use the word kairos, which is, chronos is the set watch kind of time. We, you may know chronology or, or this kind of word, but chronos is the idea of something set, tick-tock kind of time. But kairos is more like opportunity. And the words here are good or bad opportunity. 
whether it's opportune or not, be ready. Often lately, it doesn't seem opportune ever. But be ready. Be ready. And then he, and then he uses three words that he's used previously in, in Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Call alongside. These are words I think meant internally. These are for the church. He's telling Timothy to do these things among his brothers. That we should be the kind of people who, as, as the Word of God says, as iron sharpens iron, so we grow in the faith together. This, there's, there's sometimes some friction. You know, we make mistakes sometimes in this church. If you're kind of new around here, I got really bad news. We're a bunch of messed up people. And we make mistakes and we're broken. I even say crazy stuff up here sometimes. I don't mean to. I'm trying really hard to follow the Spirit's lead. Sometimes I may not say hi to you as I leave the building. It's not because I don't care. It's because my brain is on other things. I'm in my own head sometimes. I might see you in a supermarket and just run right by you. Just come tap me on the shoulder. Say, hey, I'll be happy to see you. It's just, just know this. I am like a horse with blinders a lot in my life. And I pray the Lord to remove these, but I have trouble. Be watchful. Work with each other. And all of this is tied together with verse 2, and that is complete patience. <laughs> There's a great word. Thank you, Paul. For the word macrothumia, which means to have long fuse, long suffering. Thumia is this idea of fire, thermos, thermostat. We know those words, this idea of, 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 of heat or cool. But here's the idea of heat. So macro means huge, so have huge heat. Have the ability to withstand huge heat for each other. <sighs> I was good till he said that one like... I didn't know patience was in the Bible like we really. Complete patience. In fact, it's all tied together with that. We really don't do a good job of being ready if we're not patient. There's certainly that. We should, we should have a great deal of that for our brothers and sisters of the faith, but we need to have a whole lot more for those, of the, uh, those outside. <laughs> we shouldn't be like, even, even surprised when people don't follow after the Lord outside. We have patience with them. So be serious. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Peter writes in 1 Peter, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now, does he literally mean we never sleep? Impossible. He means that we're constantly awake in the sense that we're aware, in the sense that we're working on this, that we're, we're thinking about it, that we're ever watchful, that even in our rest, we're resting in the Lord. As Jesus saw and joined in the Father, this is what He said in John chapter 5. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Now, He's modeling something there. Obviously, Jesus, there's something that He gave up when He became incarnate, when He took, up, took on flesh. He, he put Himself in a... a a moment in time which God had never done. And he also has let go of some, apparently, of his knowledge, of his omniscience. And so what he's speaking there of is that even me, when I'm following the Father, I have to be constantly in prayer and looking for where he's moving. Now, if Christ Jesus has to do that, we have to do it tenfold. 
we have so much less awareness of what God is doing. We need to be in prayer and before Him. Be watchful. This is what Peter did. I could go to a hundred different stories in Scripture, but Peter, uh, when, he's, when he's making the move through, uh, the, through Turkey, kind of modern-day Turkey, and he's working on the gospel there, in the book of Acts, we see him getting a vision in Acts chapter 19, or chapter 10, verse 19, and he says, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Here's what happens to Peter, and I think it continues to happen every day, possibly every day to us. And that is, he's in prayer, He's hungry. He's watchful for what the Spirit's doing. I I would imagine he's been praying these kinds of prayers that we see on this rooftop for many days, maybe many weeks. And the Spirit shows up and allows and just simply says, look, there's some guys downstairs. You should go with them. See what they're up to. These are Roman soldiers that show up at the door. Not really a smart move for him to go with them. Could mean death. Could mean persecution. This is a really rough time to be a Christian. But the Lord says, go. So what is the lesson there for us? Be watchful. That is attentive in prayer. Focusing on what God is doing in our life. Noticing people around us. That's a hard one just for me. Like That's part of my prayer. Is like, God, help me to just notice people. <laughs> help me to not be so focused on my mission today. And sometimes Jonathan's missions are strange. Like I, yesterday, I wanted to go get dirt to fill some holes in my yard. That's a weird mission, right? I'm going to Lowe's to get dirt. And that was all I did. I didn't really look around because I didn't really pray it up. I wasn't in a great state of mind yesterday other than just, it's a nice day and I want to put dirt in holes. <laughs> Sometimes you have dirt in holes kind of days. I'm with you. Be prayerful though and watchful. Open up your eyes. Lift them from your cart to the horizon. And see the Spirit already moving. Sometimes people show up knocking at your door. People show up knocking at my door a lot too, and it's a super inconvenience. I'm like, don't get the door. I'm like yelling at my kids, don't get the door. Like we're hiding in here, right? Y'all are laughing. You'll do the same thing. Don't act like I'm crazy. Don't get the door. Hide. There's these little neighborhood boys that show up, and they're very loud and rambunctious, and there's just days I don't want to see them. Lord, work on me in that. Be sober-minded. The next word that he gives, the next imperative, is a tougher one. He says, endure suffering. Why does he say that? Well, guess what he's just said in verses 3 and 4. He says, the world is turning upside down. And if that's true, then you following Christ is going to need perseverance. You following Christ is going to mean there are times you are not popular. There are times that what you say, though it may be true, will be thought to as a lie. And the people will not recognize it as truth and they will, they will belittle you for it or worse. He says, endure suffering. Christian today, if that's you, if you showed up and you call yourself a person of the faith, understand that it's not always popular to follow the Lord. But it doesn't mean it's not the place where there is joy, peace, life. All of those things that the Holy Spirit promises, those are there, but He does not promise comfort. Find me that in the Scriptures. Please, after after church, find me that in the Scriptures that God promises comfort. No, Jesus says something different. He says, if they call me Beelzebub, what do you think they're going to call you? They're going to call you far worse. Lord of the flies, Satan, that's what they're calling him. 
having, having any sense of, of, of Scripture, having any awareness of, of truth will make you endure some suffering. Maybe more as time goes on. I worry for my children what suffering they will have to endure. I want them to be prepared. I'm not telling them lies. <laughs> I'm telling them truth. The world doesn't get better on its own. Just like your house, if it's unclean today, you're not going to go home today and it be clean. You've got to do the work. I'm sorry. It's, things just get worse. They're, life is a life of degradation. <laughs> Y'all love this message. And you're getting older and your bodies are getting worse. Like, how great is this? And yet heaven's on the other side. There's something to look forward to. But there's something to be aware of in this, that there is suffering. In fact, some philosophers nowadays even say that life is suffering and we, we must find meaning in it. There's, they're very close to truth there. Like there's pieces of that that are very factual. Because life, at least this current life, is filled with sin. And sin results in death, which is suffering. The Lord says that Himself. So what are we to do with this? Well, it's good to come into the battle knowing it's going to have some rough patches, all right? We're going into the world when we leave this place today, no matter where you find yourself at lunch or wherever, maybe, maybe there will be absolutely no burden today, but I guarantee you at least a handful of us in the room are going to fight some things today. Maybe you're going to spend some time with family today, and that in and of itself is suffering for some of you. It's not for me. I love my family. You know, I don't want to spend every day with them. The beach trip where I spend with my family, that's seven days is like kind of the peak. Like, I'm, I'll see y'all later. Like, I'm good with y'all now. But endure suffering, he says. Why? Because the people will not endure sound teaching in verse 3. They have itching ears. The idea of the itching ear is that they want something to tickle their, their mind. That's what he means by this. this. This word means they're desirous of hearing something pleasant. Please don't give me bad news. I couldn't help but read these couple of verses and go, how much more could this be our current culture? Like, And, and if, if you're young today, I do mean this in every bit of offensive as I can. Um, <laughs> just people born uh, after the 80s, like, I don't know what's happened to you, but yeah. And if you've had great parents, you can overcome this. Like I had a father who would, when I'd walk by, he would trip me. Um, and that's good. That's good parenting. Like it's very soft. And what happens when people are soft enough? They just, they're not ready to hear anything hard. They won't endure sound teaching. Ha they have itching ears. They're desirous to hear something pleasant. Don't give me bad news. The, the good news of Christ is great. There's a piece of it that's bad. It's very small, but it's important. And that small piece is that we, we're not good enough. And if we were honest with ourselves, we would already know that's true. The Gospel doesn't have to tell us that. We can look in the mirror and go, I got, I got some problems. But the good news of Christ Jesus doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us in what we might call total depravity. No, it moves us from that point and says, no, we have His righteousness imputed. That means it's been credited to our account in Christ Jesus. 
When God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Now, you don't have to tell me I'm good, but I want to know the truth. I'm messed up. But the good news is that Jesus is perfect. And He has given that to me. That's mercy. That's grace. And people, many people won't endure that. They won't endure sound teaching. They have itching ears. They don't want to hear that there's something wrong. They want to hear that everything is right. What does that mean, believer? That means endure suffering with, verse 1, verse 2, complete patience. Long-suffering. Endure suffering with long-suffering. That means I'm going to wrestle with these people for a bit. I know that they're not ready to hear truth, but the Bible says I need to be ready in season and out of season. Look, if it's somebody you work with, this is somebody who's just, they, they just want to hear good. They don't ever want to take anything seriously. They just want to go after their own passions. You work with people like this. Almost all of you do. You run into people like this all the time. If that's who you're seeing on a regular basis, be patient. Endure suffering. Endure those conversations that aren't super pleasant where you can look them in the eyes and say, you know what? What you're doing right now, I don't believe it's God's best for you. I love you and I know God loves you far more than I could understand. And He's got a better plan than what you're doing. You know what they're going to often be? They're going to they're shun that. They're gonna, that doesn't tickle my ears. You're telling me I'm not going where God designed me to go, wait a minute, I don't even know if there is this God you speak of. What do you do? Endure. Persevere. And if you work with this person long enough, you'll get some new opportunities down the road. It might take months. It might take years. But if you're there for a while, be patient, long-suffering, because this is the world around us, and we have a great, great mission. And the Holy Spirit of God is working in people's lives. This is, again, I want you to hear this part. Don't miss this part. We don't save people. (laughs) It's not our job. Our job is the message. Preach the Word in season and out of season. Be heralds. I heard great news. I heard that Jesus died for my sin and that He's paid for it on the cross, that there's everlasting life after this place, and that eternal life starts right now. I can have a purpose that's different than the world's, and it changes everything. That's all i got to do. I don't know if people will accept it or not, but I've got to be the herald. That's what God has called me to. So be mobilized for the gospel. This is what Paul writes earlier in 2 Timothy. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's our calling, friends. It's funny, we we get this idea of enduring suffering in a lot of aspects of life. Take, for instance, some of the the like elite schools in the in the military, and you could go a lot of different routes with this. You could go, you could think about sports. In fact, when I was in high school football, I don't remember us having tryouts. We just had two a days all through the summer, and our coach tried to kill us, and eventually people just left the field. And eventually we only had like 50-some players or however many we were allowed to keep. And that was it. He just tried to kill us for several weeks and whoever was left were the survivors. This, do you understand this is kind of what a lot of the specialty schools do in the military? They, they basically almost kill people until they leave or quit. And the people that are left are some bad people. You can watch some of these things, the Navy SEALs training, the BUDS and all this. It's awful. 
They're doing it to weed out those who can endure. Paul says to Timothy what I believe the Word of God is saying to all of us today. Endure suffering by the power of God, not by your own power, who has saved us and who has called us to a holy calling. I don't care what you do in life. You have this calling, friend. It's the greatest, greatest calling. No matter what it is you do with your hands or your mind or your work, you've been saved and called for a holy purpose. And it leads into this third imperative, which is do the work of an evangelist. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this one because it's pretty self-explanatory. I like that he doesn't say be the evangelist or be like... No, he says do the work of an evangelist. This gives me the sense that Paul is not trying to tell Timothy you've got some kind of special evangelism power. I want to offer something to you, church, for you to chew on. There's a lot of spiritual gifts listed in the Scriptures. Evangelism, as far as I can tell, does not appear. There is the fivefold gifting you see in Ephesians where it says pastors, teachers, evangelists. That five list right there, right? So there is some role of a person that is called to do what? Equip the saints. So this is some sort of pastoral role where this person encourages others in evangelism. But is evangelism a spiritual gift? If it is, we've all been given it. How do I know that? Well, Christ Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Who does He say that to? Believers. All believers. So there's no, there's no special... Some people are a little better at it than others. Why is that? Well, I think it may be that they're more prayerful. Maybe they're more leaning into the Holy Spirit. Maybe they've done it a lot more. They're well, they're well practiced. He says, do the work of an evangelist. That means do the work that we should all be doing together. Timothy, don't forget this part. This is why Jesus says in Mark 16, hear it again, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In Acts 1.8, Jesus gives us, in fact, He unpacks a strategy. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Start at home, expand to your community, expand to your state, expand to the world. This is the mission that God and strategy that Christ has given. And it's the same mission for all. He could literally have said this to any of us. Please be watchful. Endure suffering. Friend, William, do the work of an evangelist. Christ has called you to it. Amber, do the work of an evangelist. Christ has called you to it. A holy calling that each of us have received. It makes me think like there's a lot of different missions out there. Like, what would be the mission? And I have one, at least one person in here that, that, that's working on a restaurant. But what would be the mission of a great restaurant? Let me just throw that out there. You think about that. Don't, don't answer that, all right? <laughs> what would be the mission of a great restaurant? It, it, nobody? Do y'all go to restaurants? No? I <laughs> I eat out too much. Y'all are great. What would, be, what would be the main mission of a great restaurant? Good food. Would, that, that would be really important, right? Good food. Good service. 
good atmosphere? If it has all those, boy, you're getting something. You're in a good place. You might come back. You know what their real mission is? And I don't mean this ugly. Make money. You know what they do if they don't make money? They close. Now, making money leads them to a lot of other things. Because underneath making money, perhaps the most important thing is to make people happy. Every business has that model. Really underneath it, if it's a business that makes money, they need to make their clients happy. And what do they do to get there? Well, they have busboys. They have waitresses. They better have some good cooks. They better have some good managers. They do all these things. But they all have one purpose. Make people happy. The Bible is filled with like umpteen different spiritual giftings. Hospitality and, and service and preaching and teaching. And there's, I could go to several different places to find these varieties of giftings. One mission. One mission. Make disciples. Doesn't matter what you think you're good at. We have that mission together. So do the work of an evangelist. Be ready in season and out of season. Don't come to me later with the excuse of like, I don't know what my gifting is. The Lord will show you that. Keep praying for that. Maybe there's, there's something He intends for you in your future. But here's what I know you can be doing right now. Do the work of an evangelist. Who do you know that's lost? If you don't have any lost friends, you are in a rabbit hole, my friend. Get out more. If you don't have any lost family, wow. Praise God. I had, I, even, even I had some on, on, on my side. Now, when I added on, I got a lot more. <laughs> Do the work of an evangelist. And lastly, and I got a, boy, I got a sprint. Y'all got to watch my time for me. Come on now. Fulfill your ministry. That's how he finishes. Fulfill your ministry. Endure suffering. Be watchful. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Now you're thinking, hey, Jonathan, you didn't work very hard on these points. I know. They were too good. I just left them the way they were. Fulfill your ministry. And what does that mean? Well, literally, fulfill is the idea of carry through to the end. To fully accomplish what? This word ministry is diakonia. It's where we get this idea of deacon, which is literally servant. It means ministry at times, but most often it means service. So he's saying, bring to completion your godly service. Every believer is called to fulfill their ministry. Paul also writes in Colossians, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Every believer in the church body is uniquely gifted to serve according to the grace given. Romans 12, it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in His exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Fulfill your ministry. Now, if you haven't identified that yet, there's a couple of things to think about. First of all, we, we do discipleship together here as a church. Now, I get that this is something that... 
is a program, but it's supposed to be organic. The intent is that people would meet together and get serious about accountability and get serious about discipleship. In that, in that particular, it's a 21-week study where we sit together, you and a, another man or you and another woman if you're a woman, and you sit together one-on-one and you, you work out some of the finer functions of not only the Word of God, but also your shape and what God's doing in your life. If you're in this place of struggle, I would invite you today, sign up for that, that, that you would do life-on-life discipleship with, with one of us, and we would identify those gifts. But I, but I am interested because I think a great many people kind of know some of their gifting, and a lot of times it's either I'm scared to go there, <laughs> Or I know what that might mean long term. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to overcommit. Like, this is the most. I don't want to commit to anything generation I've ever met. <laughs> you know, heaven is going to be a place where we're committed to praise God all the time. I'm wondering if any of us are really ready for heaven. Like, I'm not sure. A place where we worship and a place where we're so thankful to be in His presence nonstop. Commitment, like, I wonder. I wonder who in this room has felt a call to mission and has said no. I wonder who in this room has felt called to ministry, and I'm talking like pastoral ministry, and has said no. I wonder wonder how many of you in the room have, you know what you're good at, but for whatever reason, you've sat it aside. I would encourage you, my friend, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. Accomplish it. If you don't know what to do, well, I can tell you this. There's a lot of things we could use help with. You know, If you have some secret skill at drumming, I'll put you on stage in a heartbeat. I'm telling you right now. If you can sing, I ain't afraid of you. If you like to work in the nursery, um, if, you know, changing a diaper is, is great worship. One of the ministries that that's often in greatest lack, is one of the most important ministries we do as a church, and that is raising up the next generation. You know most people come to faith before the age of 12. That means some of the most important stuff we do in church is happening outside of this room. Fulfill your ministry, friends. They need help. But I don't want you back there unless you feel called, because you will do more harm than good. But fulfill your ministry, my friends. As I conclude, I want to bring something to mind. <clears throat> in 10 years, <laughs> the year will be 20, almost 2033. That's weird. That's a weird number to say, 2033. We think that somewhere around the year 33 AD, Christ Jesus was crucified and gave the Great Commission. Do you know we're coming up on 2,000 years of the Great Commission? Isn't that cool to think about? I want to be a part of a generation that's serious about the Great Commission. I want to be a part of a people that are watchful, doing the work of the evangelist, enduring suffering, and fulfilling the gifting that God has given them. How about you? Let's pray together now, church. Dear Heavenly Father, we love You. We're thankful for Your Son, Jesus. We're aware of this. We're not in this room right now. We're not doing any of these things. We're not opening up Your Word if it weren't for Christ. And so let me first just offer up myself and my praise and my worship and my gratitude for Your Son, Jesus, who took on the cross for my sake.
and paid the price I couldn't pay. Even if I, even if I wanted to and I didn't, but even if I did, I couldn't pay it because I'm broken, I'm sinful. And yet He did the thing I could not. Lived a perfect life. <laughs> Healed and spoke and brought Your kingdom on earth and died for my sake and rose again that I might have hope and freedom. Thank You. Thank You, Christ Jesus, for who You are to us. Thank You for Your love and Your mercy. I pray it is ever-changing our hearts. If you showed up today and you're, you would very much like to get on board with, with what God's doing in your life, but you recognize you've never made a confession of faith. It's been something on the outside for all this time. Maybe you've heard the truth before, growing up in church perhaps, or from your parents or grandparents, or somewhere you've heard the truth of Jesus. Or maybe today's the first day you're really getting it for the first time that Christ died for you and eternal life is on the other side of that confession of faith. If that's you today, I wonder, why would you wait? Why would you wait any longer on an eternal life that starts right now, on purpose and meaning that only comes through the God who designed you and created you for a greater purpose? Dear friend, if you're willing, if you feel the Holy Spirit moving you towards faith, please pray with me. A simple prayer of confession. As Paul writes in Romans 10, he says, If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe that as a body of believers. That is, by faith we are moved to salvation. Pray with me, friend, if that's you today. Dear Jesus, I, I do believe that You are Lord of my life. What that means is you are, You're in charge you are king. You're on the throne of my life. And I'm placing you there. I'm confessing you there now. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. My brokenness, my shame, my guilt, my wrongdoings. You have paid for them on the cross. I believe that today. And that it gives me such a feeling of peace and freedom. Thank you, Lord, for that. And I believe, God, that You raised Jesus from the dead. I believe in the cross and the resurrection. Christ, I'm asking now, would You guide me on the course of life You designed me for? Help me to be mobilized for the mission that I would take seriously the, the gifts and the things You've invested in me that I would be watchful for the Holy Spirit's move in my life. Guide my steps. Dear friend, if you prayed that prayer with me just now, welcome to the family of God. And we're praying that last part right along with you. God, would you do a, a work in us where we can begin to see where you're opening up doors. I'm praying for this church right now that our neighbor, our neighbors to our left and to our right in our, in our communities, Lord, that you would open up doors in those places where we live, where we work, our co-workers, the people right next to us, the people down the hall from us, Lord, those people we've been talking to for days, months, sometimes years, open up doors to their hearts, Lord. Do the part only You can do. And help us to have the courage to simply be messengers, to preach the Word in season and out of season. Help us with that, Lord God. I'm offering myself up to You now. Remove the blinders, please. Help me to lift my eyes and see the people who are desperate for you. 
I love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.